Welcome to the Woe Podcast about horses and horsemanship. I'm John Hare, and you found the place where we talk horses. Today, we go back to the 1860s and relive the 2,000-mile ride of the Pony Express. On the line from Santa Fe, New Mexico, is Will Grant, author of The Last Ride of the Pony Express, his 2,000-mile horseback journey into the Old West. Good morning, Will. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. It's a, it's a nice day here in California, and uh, how are things in New Mexico? They're feeling like early summer around here. It's oh. another nice day. <laughs> Sounds good. Hey, we're here to talk about your new book about the Pony Express, but just to give people a background about your experience with horses and horsemanship, can you tell us about your history with horses? Sure. The first picture of me on a horse is from 1981, which would make me two years old. And it's written on the back, Will on Buster, 1981. And that was taken at a family ranch in Steamboat Springs, Colorado. And basically since then, I've always wanted to be around horses. I did some work on ranches in the summer, and I worked on that ranch in Steamboat. But really, my career with horses started after college. I took a job starting Arabs in Larkspur, Colorado for $15 a ride. So that, that, was, good. that was good fun, for sure. What is special about starting Arabs? Oh, nothing there. I mean, it's like starting every other horse. They're sensitive horses and you got to be pretty light handed with them. They're probably not as likely to buck you off as a, as our young cow horses, but it was, it was a great way for me to, to learn how to handle young horses. And from there, I had the opportunity to go to North Texas and work under an old man named Jack Brainerd. Everybody knows Jack, I think. Great. Uh, He was a real mentor and friend to me, and we got along immediately. That was at a barn that was training reining horses, showing and training reining horses. And so from there, I rode at that place for a year or so, and then leased a place in Bowie, Texas, about an hour west of Jack, And we continued to ride together, and he taught me so much about horses. I mean, he was a, he, basically anything I know today is a result of Jack's teaching. Wow. And then in 2008, I decided to go back to school for journalism. Since then, I've been trying to combine horses and riding as much as I can. Very cool. And And it's basically all to those years in Texas riding with Jack. What kind of things did you do with Jack? If you know Jack, you probably know that he was interested in the flying change of lead. Mm -hmm. Yep, the lead changes. I mean, we did so many lead changes. Any horse that came through the barn, we would try to do lead changes on because there's so much horsemanship involved in a flying change of leads. That to get there, you actually end up with a really broke horse. That, that's probably one of the most important things I learned from Jack. 
Right. So everything goes into this, right? Lateral movements, leg yields, turn on the forehand, collection, impulsion. It's all there. <laughs> so that's what we did with, that's what I did a lot with Jack. Yeah. And it was really, really fun. I've, I've heard that about him. So am I understanding it right? If, if you can get that flying lead change, then all the other parts are working right. And if you can't get it, yes. you, you need to go figure something else out, right? Right. Like So if you can't get it, then what's the reason you can't get it? Because this deficiency or this sort of a hole or whatever you want to call it is going to show up elsewhere. Right. But if you can get a horse to where he changes leads quietly whenever you ask, then you've got a lot going for you as far as control. <laughs> That's the theory, correct? Yeah. Takes a while to get there, though. I bet. And let's let's stay here a little while. Can you tell me what were some of the challenges in getting a horse to do that? Did you find there was one particular body part that you needed to really have control of to get that flying lead change? Absolutely. The hindquarters. The, the, the control of the hindquarters is so fundamental to the way we ride horses. Mm -hmm. And if you could get their hindquarters underneath them and sensitive to the calf of your leg, then that, that was the secret to the lead change was hindquarter control. Jack would say that over and over and over. And he would tell people over and over and over in, in hopes that it would sink in. But you see this all over. I was just watching a documentary on the Spanish riding school of Vienna, you know, with the Lippenzahner stallions. Mm -hmm. And it's all about the hips, I tell you. Everything they do is about control of the hindquarters because it's so easy to control the shoulders of the horse, really. Like you can get on a horse that's only been ridden a handful of times and, and pull his shoulders, actually physically move his shoulders to the left or the right with both your legs and the reins, mm -hmm. you know, a halter, whatever. But moving the hips up on, under the horse laterally and forward is, is very difficult. And it takes a long time. And to get the lead change, Jack would spend a lot of time lightening the horse to leg pressure, lightening the hindquarters, pushing him left and then pushing him right. And then the lead change became a lot easier. Yeah, I've personally struggled with this myself, is that I can move the hindquarters laterally, left and right pretty well. But moving them so that they actually go back underneath the horse, which is what I think you're you're talking about. Yeah. That's the real goal is moving them up underneath the horse and to the side. Is there some technique that might help people listening to this, particularly me, <laughs> to get that accomplished? I mean, that is the uh, like the essence of collection right there. And everybody struggles with this, you know, and it's hard for horses too. one thing that we have to keep in mind is that the horse has to be strong enough to do this. Uh -huh. You know, like the, like a horse has to be physically fit to arch its back and draw the hindquarters forward underneath the rider. This takes some real strength through the loins, uh -huh. you know, and through the hips. And so it's important that our horses are fit enough <laughs> to do this. But uh, I don't think there is any trick. 
you know, I, I know that, you know, I've taken some uh, lessons from a woman who's a dressage trainer in Florida, and she's come through New Mexico a few times, mm-hmm. and she has her own ways of kind of doing it, and it's similar to everybody else's, like cueing the hindquarters up underneath the horse, but boy, it's hard. Yeah. I don't know the secret. If there is a secret, you should keep me on the list of people to tell. (laughs) For sure. If I discover something, maybe I'll write my own book. (laughs) But yeah, there you go. (laughs) And let's talk about about your book, the 2000 mile ride horseback to retrace the Pony Express. What inspired you to to do this trip? Well, on one hand, I really wanted a like a cultural cross section of the American West. So I wanted to travel the breadth of the West and and fill in the map for myself on a very personal level. Mm-hmm. You know, cuz I consider myself a westerner and a product of the West and an active participant in in western culture. And I just wanted to know who lived in western Nebraska and central Nevada and all these places that I'd never been to. And I thought that in a single journey, these events or these experiences would be strung together in a way that would give me a real sense of context in the West. Like, why does this person live here and why do they dress like this? Why do they any number of things that reflect like place. Right. So I wanted to learn this. I wanted to make a slow trip. Yeah. And uh, there's really no other way I was going to do this except for horses. You know, I thought that obviously I'm not going to ride a bike. I'll tell you that right now. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm not going to (laughs) walk. So I thought that I could retrace the Pony Express trail on horseback. And by doing so, I I would come away with an understanding of this mail service from 1860 that was brief, but has cast a very long shadow in our historical record. You were in no hurry to to make your trip. You weren't doing it in, what was it, 10 days that they, they rode the trail How long did it take you to do this 2,000 miles? I spent 142 nights on the trail. So that's five months of riding. And so I wanted to go slow because I wanted to see the grasses and and the rolling hills and the soil and meet the people and travel slowly. But I'll tell you what, about the time I was halfway through Nebraska, so I had two horses. Two horses with me, chicken fry and badger. (laughs) And they became really good friends of mine. (laughs) And about halfway through Nebraska, so I was about five or six weeks in, it suddenly dawned on me that the slower I traveled, the sooner I would get to California. Because if you hurry, you get into trouble. When you're traveling by horseback, you know, uh-huh. it's, it can be a dangerous thing riding along these 75 mile an hour highways and, you know, finding water sources at night in some pasture. You know, I had to like dismantle a cattle guard with a pair of fencing pliers to get to water one night. Like this is pretty hard and you got to be very careful when you're alone 
and I dealt with some soreness, like both in, in in both my horses. You know, as they became fit, they they went through periods of discomfort. Like we were all sore. I'll tell you that. You know, right. and so I realized that the slower I traveled, the more likely I was to actually get to California. Huh. That if I hurried and I injured a horse or something, having to accommodate a new horse would be such a pain in the neck. You know, I had right. two horses here in New Mexico that I could have had shipped up to me, but we had such a routine. The way I hobbled them and set up the electric fence and loaded the pack saddle, such a routine. And to fit in a new horse would have been a real pain in the neck. Right. And so I was like, I got to keep him Brian Badger and I got to keep him in good shape. I have to preserve this horse flesh, you know? Uh-huh. And how did you handle, like, feed? Was it all grazing? All grazing. I had a, an electric fence. It was one strand of 3 eighths inch braided nylon. Have you ever seen fences like this? I've heard they of are, them, but I, I don't, I'm not familiar with them. It's one strand of electrified rope, huh. and it made a corral 60-foot square. And the posts fit in two pieces, like tent poles. You know, they have a feral. Right. And they had one guy wire off it. So this contained the horses. And this was enough room for them to graze. And I picked up this system from a guy who is a packer, contract packer for the Forest Service in western Montana. And he uses mules. And he said that this electric fence system was how he had the fewest wrecks. And I thought that sounded pretty good, and it worked like a charm. Very good. And so it was big enough for them to graze. And it was a really wet year. I did this in 2019, and it was a really wet year, so there were lots of grass as far as about Salt Lake City. And then what happened? (laughs) And then what happened is, well, I don't know if you've ever driven like Interstate 80 west of Salt Lake, but it is a pretty severe desert. And so... Looking at the maps, I rested like five days in Salt Lake City, just about the halfway point. I got a haircut, some new clothes, cleaned up, a couple of good meals. But looking at the maps, it was pretty daunting. So I hired a 17-year-old kid to drop hay in water at six locations between Salt Lake and the Nevada state line. Uh-huh. And I shared waypoints with him over our mobile phones. Right. So I would say, we're looking at this juniper tree. This is where I want you to put the hay and water. 25 miles farther on, we find another location. And so he would drop a one three-strand bale of grass alfalfa mix, you know, probably an 85, 90-pound bale. Uh-huh. And, then, and then about 80 to 90 gallons of water in mineral tubs, in tubs, like, uh, and a, in a big Tupperware thing full of water out there in the <laughs> middle of the desert. But it worked. I mean, this is a pretty nerve wracking experience I bet. for me. There's no, yeah, there's no cell phone coverage out there. I mean, it looks like the surface of Mars in places. It's, it's like, you know, the Bonneville salt flats are out there. You know, it's some pretty harsh country. So that was a stressful period. And I would wake up about 3.30 in the morning and try to get to camp about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Wow. Was everything that was dropped, was it still there when, by the time you got there? Yeah, it was. 
Can you believe that? <laughs> no, the only like sort of error that we had is that at the last drop, there was a water trough for sheep out in the middle of the desert. And so we had heard, I had heard from a local rancher that that trough had water in it and it was good water. Uh-huh. And so my kid didn't drop any water there for me or the horses. And the horses were fine. But when I got to that trough, it was basically full of moss. Uh-huh. And there was like a half inch of clear water at the top. And the horses didn't seem to mind, you know. But for me, filtering this water, like I didn't have a filter. What I had was a UV light. It's called a Steri pen. Mm-hmm. And so you can stir your water bottle for 30 seconds and it's safe to drink. Kills 99% of bacteria. Right. But it still is full of algae and everything. So <laughs> that was a little tough. It's, but I carried lemonade powder because I drank a lot of bad water. Like I ended up drinking out of irrigation ditches. And so I had to have lemonade powder or tang powder, something to kill the flavor of cow manure. <laughs> And so, yeah, and you spoke earlier about uh, going slow to keep your horses fit. Did you have any physical problems uh, during the 100-plus days that you were on the road? Nope, I was pretty good. I came to in good shape. I was closing a wire gate in that Utah desert, actually. And my horse didn't really spook, but he lifted his head, and it pulled the bridle reins through my hand and ran my hand over the wire. And it laid open a cut at the base of my thumb, you know, an inch and a half cut or something. And um, that kind of sucked because my med kit was packed at the bottom <laughs> of the pack sack. <laughs> and we were just loaded up. It was like 530 in the morning and we were ready to go. You know, it was time to go. And I didn't want to pour my water over it, my hand, because... You know, you don't know how thirsty you're going to be. <laughs> and But I did have a little pack of Kleenexes that had been in the saddlebag since, like, Nebraska. And so this was a long way from there. And I kind of mopped up the blood, but I rode. I spent all day, like, nine hours riding with my left hand held off away from my horse and me because I was really worried about infection. You know, I was so dirty. Right. And I, and I figured an infection would send me home in a second. The last thing you want to do is like get into trouble, you know, like that. So I was holding my pack horse, the reins to my saddle horse in my right hand, holding my left hand off the side. And for eight hours or nine hours, this is torturous, you know. You said you went, you took part in the ride because you wanted to see pretty much America. What kind of people did you run into and what did you learn from them? I ran into the best people in the world. The hospitality was the most refreshing part of this journey and how much people wanted to help me and how accommodating they were. You know, only one place. So 142 nights, but I spent a couple nights or I spent several places like more than one night, you know, resting Mm -hmm. or whatever, but a lot of different camps and only one place. I talked to one rancher and I had had some kind of feedlot or something too. And they said they couldn't let me camp there because their insurance wouldn't cover me being on the place or something. But that was the only time I was turned away. Wow. So the hospitality, I mean, so encouraging, right? People of the American West, the fact that a passerby horseman can still find open doors 
And can you tell us about one of the families you met or a place that you stopped that was memorable? So one place that was memorable is I stopped at a horse trainer's place in western Nebraska. He's a guy named Steve Sward, S-W-A-R-D. He's a good hand. He's done some of the Mustang makeover stuff. Well, I had a sore horse and ended up at his place for two days. There are two kids hanging around there. One is the daughter of his current wife, and one is his son. And I hung out with these kids sitting in the shade of the barn for like two days drinking Dr. Peppers, and they were the coolest kids. And, you know, this little girl, this young girl, she was 16. She's like, I'm really trying to make good grades in school because I want to travel the world. And I want to go meet different people. And she wanted to go to Japan and she was headed to Peru with her Spanish class. And I thought that was pretty cool. You know, like this is inspiring to hear this woman talk about this young woman talk about this. And out there in the middle of Nebraska, Steve was a, a great guy. And so it was really like they were really warm. You know, I really felt they they certainly, you know, were good to me, put up my horses, fed them, all this. It was just really interesting to talk to this young woman, you know, about her ambitions. Right. And then I stayed at a place called the Dry Creek Ranch in central Nevada. And it was the site of the Dry Creek Pony Express Station. And it's like the biggest country in the world. You know, those valleys out there in Nevada are 20 miles wide. And it's the basin and range and really remote. And the water sources are few and far between. But the water sources, you know, the 19th century were uh, all the stock stations out there. So the Dry Creek Ranch was a Pony Express station. And I met a guy there, a bachelor by the name of Tom Demelli. And I was like, this guy is straight out of the Pony Express. His <laughs> barns were built in an old way, like stacked rocks without mortar like willow thatching for the ceilings and then sawed on top of the roof in the barn is built like this. It looked like a barn Pony Express station. I saw a museum of a Pony Express stable. It's still there in Marysville, Kansas, Pony Express Barn Museum. And it looked like Tom DeMelli's barn, except for Tom DeMelli's barn was the real deal. Wow. And, And this guy had like 30 horses. Oh my God. You know, when I met him, he was wearing a gray felt hat that looked like it was from the Pony Express, you know, <laughs> looked like it had been on his head for like 50 years. <laughs> I mean, and he was the coolest guy. And the stories he told me about the land and the horses, I felt like he was a living connection between the Pony Express and the current Western landscape. Yeah. And one thing about that Pony Express station, we were talking about it. Apparently, they were breaking horses there for the Pony Express. But the Pony Express only lasted for 18 months. So how broke is a horse? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I mean, we're talking wild horses. Because what Tom told me is up at the top of that canyon, there were two wing fences, each one a mile long. And they came they came together in a V at the bottom of the valley into a like a hundred foot diameter round corral with a picket fence, so vertical logs. So the horses would be driven down between these wing fences into that corral. And then you'd go to work getting them started. <laughs> <laughs> 
And yeah. so they were just getting horses right off the range, just wild horses, and then breaking those for That's the Pony right. Express? That's right. Wow. So we were talking about this because how could you get one safe? <laughs> there was no safe. <laughs> <laughs> but if you needed a horse to run 20 miles to the next station in the middle of the night during a January blizzard, the only horse you'd want is one of those tough Mustangs that grew up out there. Yeah. You, a, a regular horse couldn't do it. Yeah, yeah. sure-footed and, and lots of endurance. And tough. And not the kind of horse that's going to feel sorry for itself if the wind's blowing in its face, you know, 20 miles an hour. Right. I've talked to some people that have run the Mongol Derby, and the Pony Express ride seems a lot like the Mongol Derby. Have you, have you heard about that race? I did it in 2012. Oh, did you really? So you know what I'm talking about. I 100% know. Yep. The Mongol Derby is based on Genghis Khan's system, where it was a horse station, a yurt camp, every 25 miles, 40 kilometers. And this is similar. Wow. This is similar. Yeah. This is like getting off one horse and getting on another horse. And that's pretty hard work. Those horses were the same way. You'd want one that you just point in the right direction and level him out, and he'll do the rest. But they can't be tripping in holes. It takes a certain kind of horse. Those Mongolian horses are such good horses, and they watch out for the holes, and they are good on their feet, and they travel. Wow. So a lot of similarities between the Pony Express and Genghis Khan's system. That was called the Yam. Was Genghis Khan's system used for mail delivery as well? It was for communication. So there wasn't necessarily written letters or mail, but it was for um, relaying messages from his armies as they went about conquering all of Asia. (laughs) You know, so that was set up in the 12th century and it was last used in the 1940s. Can you believe that? So that is... The Pony Express lasted for 18 months, and they burned up horses, and they burned up riders. Genghis Khan's system lasted from the 12th century, like 1250 or something, or 1150 or something, until 1940. Wow. Because the guy I know at the University of Colorado talked to a family who lived, like, northwest of the capital, who, in lieu of, instead of paying taxes, they could keep a horse saddle for this communication system. And what made uh, Genghis Khan's systems last so long? That's a, that is an excellent question. And part of the answer has got to be the wide distribution of horses. Because, you know, in Mongolia, they, there are horses everywhere on the steppe. Right. It wasn't the same situation in the American West when in 1860. There were horses in only a few places. There were some, so, and they weren't very easy. They weren't, they weren't, they were feral horses. Right. So the wide distribution of nomads, you know, because their pastoral system means that families are grazing every valley in Mongolia at some point in the year, you know, so they're, they're widely distributed and they all have horses. Right. So in Mongolia, there were people out on the steppes and they were always coming in contact with horses. But out in the Great Basin, there were horses, but there were no people. And so when horses saw people, they they really didn't want to have anything to do with them. Hmm. That's a good point. That's right. The only people out there 
for the Native Americans, like the Go Shoot tribe. Right. They lived basically between water sources. You know, it, it's dry, hard country. Yeah. Now, let's talk a little bit about your two horses. A lot of us recreational riders, we have horses. We can, you know, if they're at the barn, you might see them three to five times a week for an hour, a couple hours at a time. We're, we're lucky enough to have our horses on our property. What does it change when you're with your horse 24 seven for 142 days? That was such a, uh, it was such a window into a different relationship, form of relationship with horses. And it's tough to describe and it's tough to put your finger on, but it, it one of the interesting things was that everything I did, because when I got to camp, I would like lay my saddle blankets down and then lean against my saddles and like make a pot of coffee or make like coffee or whatever. And so the horses really became attuned to this. So anything I did, like my body language would affect the horses, right? If I suddenly like walked off, like the horses became, there became like a spatial awareness between me and the horses and I could feel this. And this is a big part of equine communication is body language, you know, their right. ears, their butt, their all this. And I, I felt it and I would stand up and address them. And they obviously knew I was fixing to do something, yeah. you know? So there was like this real refinement of communication of nonverbal communication. That was the interesting thing. And of course I did all the talking, but, uh, but they, they, <laughs> we developed a real um, back and forth that was so cool. And by my, from my standpoint, I was like, these guys have such a job ahead of them, you know, walking to California, my goodness. I was like, I want to reduce the resistance and the discomfort in every and all way I can. And I thought that this was like a way, good karma. Like if I take every step to keep my horses, every possible step to keep my horses comfortable and free of resistance, I'm more likely that they'll be happy. So even like sliding the bit in their mouth, made sure I never touched their teeth, you know, really gentle with them as much as I could be. Just try to be so quiet with them. Probably the coolest thing was that I just slept on a bedroll, you know, right underneath the electric wire. The coolest thing in the world was like that I would wake up every morning about two o'clock and, and just to hear the horses lying down next to me and just to hear them breathing, you know, sleeping with my horses every night was just something that was pretty new. And I just loved it. It was like a dream come true, you know. Wow. Was that a kind of an unexpected thing? Because you've been in, around horses all your life. You'd never experienced that before. Yeah. Not not like this level of intimacy with two individuals, you know, and not sleeping with them. Like, we just don't sleep with horses very much. Right. Yeah, That that's always kind of amazed me that the American Cowboy and Pony Ex Express rider, they, they just spent all that time with horses. And they must have had a different relationship with their horse than we do today with just our casual attention that we can give them. No matter how much time we try to spend with them. It's not that yep. constant. The Pony Express were with horses every hour of their day. I mean, in those isolated stations. So they go between, you know, their beat would be like 100 miles, take them however long to make that, like eight hours or something before they'd hand it off. And then they'd go back the next direction, you know, do this four times a week. Right. You're on horses around horses all the time. And <laughs> living with them in the 
little stations. I read an account by a guy who was a Pony Express rider named Nick Wilson. And he, the town of Wilson, Wyoming, which is just south of Jack, is named for. And he wrote a book. The name is escaped, but it is full of, I think, embellishment, you know, and the good frontier style. But it's full of really interesting stories. One interesting thing he said is that west of breast stations, they were worried about their horses being stolen, you know, by Native Americans, the Paiutes and, and the Goshutes. And so they would bring two horses in the station wearing saddles for the night. <laughs> to keep them safe. <laughs> <laughs> to keep them safe. It's just like the one way to guarantee things that are going to be here in the morning. You know? <laughs> now, where did the Pony Express trail end in California? Sacramento. But the receiving office was in San Francisco. So in Sacramento, them put on a ship and taken to San Francisco. A Pony Express expert named Joe Nardoni, who passed away a year and a half or so ago, but he lived in Paso Robles, California. He says that um, the mail was sometimes carried by horseback, Sacramento to San Francisco. But the real, the, the fast horse relay ended at Sacramento there in old what was it like for you riding into Sacramento on the last day? A little bittersweet? No, 100% sweet. It was a fun ending, but it was not bittersweet. It was 100% sweet. I was so ready to be done with the logistics, for one thing, and two, like the wayfinding, where we're camping, the water, the feed, all this. I'd had enough of that. And there's just like this constant source of like stress, I guess, in ensuring the welfare of the horses. Like, I was just always worried one of them was going to step on a rusty nail, right. you know, and there's just this constant worry and this constant vigilance of these two animals under your care that when I was done, I was just so relieved. I was like, thank goodness that tonight I can wake up knowing that tomorrow we don't have to ride anywhere. You know, there was a part of me when we were long time, five months on horseback. And I was like, I just can't wait to be home and ride my horse for only like an hour, like 40 <laughs> minutes. Just canter, just lope some circles. That's all I wanted to do. You know? oh, wow. And how are those horses doing today? Yeah, they're doing great. So Chicken Fry was a great horse born in Mexico, used for a lot of like day hire cowboy work. Before I got him, but a cowboy in eastern New Mexico heard about what I was doing, that I was looking for a couple of good horses, and he he put me in touch with Chicken Fry. Badger was, and we think Chicken Fry was like about 11 years old. Badger was a performance-bred quarter horse. So he's by a son of Rowdy Yankee out of a Docks Oak mare, and he was nine years old. And they're both doing great. Chicken Fry taught a just recently well kind of recently over the past two and a half years or whatever we taught an eight-year-old girl to ride on chicken fry because yeah. he is so smart and he's so sensitive you know so like this little girl he was the best horse in the world to ride on and totally unflappable you know is a very smart horse very good with his feet obviously once you walk across the country you're going to learn to pick your feet up <laughs> and 
and my wife Claire still she rides chicken fry. I ride him. I mean, he's the best horse on the place. You know, he's he's, he's the, he was our source of stability during the ride. Very very smart horse. Like I'll just tell you that the Pony Express Trail begins in St. Joseph, Missouri, and the first mile of trail is over the Missouri River. And today, that's a bridge that's like four lanes in each direction, 60 miles an hour. You know, wow. the bridge is a mile long. The river is a half mile wide. And so I got a police escort to get me across the Buchanan County Sheriff's Office, escorted me across the river on Sunday morning. And this is a difficult environment to ride a horse. You know, those expansion joints in the bridge are like three inches wide, and you can see the river 100 feet below you. Right. Yeah, this is a big deal for a horse. And and to have the cop behind me, and there's like semis and Harley guys on Harley piled up behind the cop. <laughs> and to trot the horses over that cement chicken fry just gears up and took us to Kansas. I mean, after that, I was like, this horse, you know. <laughs> I mean, this horse would do the one, you know. <laughs> A bay horse, that quarter horse, was pressed against his flanks so tightly. I mean, chicken fry just led the way. So this is a really good horse, so we don't really use him too hard. Right. But we were roping the dummy the other day. You know, it's called Smarty, and it's a steer you pull apart, pull behind an ATV. Right. And my buddy that I was doing it with, he's like, I think you could just drop the reins. And that horse, you don't even need to control him. And you could just sit up there and rope. <laughs> he's a good horse. He's got a sign on his stall that says, not for sale. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's very cool. I'm uh, looking forward to reading the book as we're doing this interview. I don't think the book's released, but by the time... People hear this, it will have been out for a little bit anyway. I'm looking forward to reading your book, The Last Ride of the Pony Express. And if people want to find out more, Will, where shall we send them? The book is being published by Little Brown and Company. You can find Pony Express anywhere books are sold. It should be widely available. The best place to send you for anything about me would be Will Grant of the West on Instagram. That's probably where you'll find the most news. Any of your local bookshops should carry it, and it's available through the Little Brown website via a number of channels. That's great, Will. Thanks so much for spending the morning with us and telling us about your ride. I, I can't wait to read the book. I can't wait to have you read it for sure. It's been a real pleasure talking to you, John. The best of luck to you. That will do it for this episode. Thanks to Will Grant for sharing his experience riding the Pony Express route. It sounds like quite the adventure. You can find his book, The Last Ride of the Pony Express, everywhere books are sold. I'll have all the links at wopodcast.com. It sounds like a very fun summer read. If you have any show ideas or suggestions for future guests, reach out to me at john at wopodcast.com or connect with me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram under the name Podcast. I love hearing from you. Thanks again for listening and sharing the podcast with your friends and writing buddies. Until next time, for Renee, this is John Hare saying, go have some fun with your horses. Bye-bye, everybody. Mm-hmm.